hi, hello and welcome. You're listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast. We're sponsored by Betfair. This is a Monday episode. I'm Ali Maxwell and I'm currently in Lake Bled, Slovenia. And I'm George Ellick and I'm currently in the United States of America. Putting the holiday in bank holiday, but we were never going to let Monday pass by unpodded. So for your delight today, we have two very interesting interviews that we think you are going to get a lot out of. We'd like to recap the weekend action over the next few days, but have to be honest and open with you guys. There's no guarantee. Uh, This isn't my first cricket tour. This isn't George's first golf trip. We're old and wise enough to know that sometimes you need a bit of runway shall we say, when you come in to land. So, interviews. George, we've done one each. Now, you've been intrigued by the Crawley story for some time now, Um, understanding that the response, reaction, and some of the concerns towards the approach, funding, plans of new ownership group Wagme United, but keen to dig beyond surface level and just find out a bit more substance. And that's how you approached your interview this week. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think it's impossible for any EFL fan not to be you know, intrigued is the right word um, when it comes to the ownership of Crawley Town from Wagby United. Um, a lot of mention of, of NFTs and cryptocurrencies, which isn't a world that I know a great deal about uh, and maybe some red flags cropping up when that happened. And then what's the opposite of, of red flags? Some green flags um, yes. when when you see um, the appointment of, of two very well, well-respected coaches in Damachichi and Kevin Betsy as manager, when you see the recruitment of Dominic Telford, and then um, last week, the appointment of, of Chris Galley from, from Statsbomb as their, as their new director of football. So it seems to me like they are making smart decisions on a football basis. Um, on the pitch, it's been pretty mixed. So intriguing times going on at Crawley. And I was able to track down Preston Johnson of Wagme United to have a chat with him about the first few months of owning Crawley Town. As for my part in this episode, I-, I wanted to know everything about what a director of football does, how they think, how they work, the sorts of things that they have to plan for and deal with. So I sat down with Forest Green Rovers director of football, Rich Hughes. Now, in the last year alone, Rich has overseen a title winning campaign in League Two. Um, and within we- weeks of that promotion being confirmed, his manager and three key players had left the club. So I really wanted to ask Rich about that and more. Uh, let's start there with my trip to Gloucestershire. Last Wednesday, I was welcomed with great hospitality. I ate a delicious vegan burger, cauliflower <laughs> wings and chips. Uh, and I was fortunate to watch Forest Green against Brighton in the Carabao. I saw future England superstar Levi Colwell, uh, future Ireland superstar Evan Ferguson uh, and current League One superstar Corey O'Keefe in the flesh. But I was also there to sit down with their director of football. He was great value and happy to be open and honest with me, especially with his response to my slightly weird and random opening gambit. Here's myself and Richard Hughes. Not that one. How annoying is the former technical midfield player Richard Hughes for you also someone who still works within the game and someone recognizable from their playing career bit annoying to have a similar name I think it's probably more annoying for him so I get 
Um, I get messages sometimes from agents that are designed for him, so I'm wondering if we're starting to attract multi-million pound international players to Forest <laughs> Green. And um, I actually, the first time I met him was at a Mansfield Town game. And I was, uh, I don't know if somebody putting the scouts tickets together was um, having a bit of fun with it and they put us next to each other. <laughs> and uh, I got chatting to him and he introduced himself and said, I'm Richard Hughes. And I went, I- I'm Richard Hughes. He went, yeah, no, nice to meet you. What's your name? And I'm like, no, no, Richard Hughes. And it was... <laughs> It was a little bit toe-killing. I felt like I couldn't speak to him for the next five minutes after that. Um, but uh, he's a real good guy, actually, a good operator as well, and has done done really well. You're director of football at a club in Forest Green that have had a really interesting first few years as an EFL club. You are director of football. Elsewhere, one might be a sporting director or a head of football operations. Could you explain to us what your role is here at the club? What we try and do here is keep everything in its simplest form. So when I came into the role, Dale sort of split it down the middle. So we have a chief executive who's in charge of club and commercial, and then myself as director of football, and my two broadest remits are football and performance. And within that, everything um, encompassing in terms of analysis, coaching, sports science, medicine, recruitment, all the regular bits and pieces you would expect. And then probably the only one that most directors of football wouldn't have a sort of say in would be actually the ground staff and the state of the pitch. And, and Dale's sort of simplistic view on that is that the state of the pitch and the quality of a pitch affects performance therefore falling under my remit so we keep it in its simplest form and and people do change the job title sporting director is actually one I've in honesty never understood because it's not sporting it is football it's a it's probably a a continental um, phrase that's been brought over Um, but yeah so anything blanketed under football and performance and anything that can affect either of those two things would sort of fall under my wider remit my understanding of the director of football role and how it is often boiled down is to oversee the mid to long term sailing of the boat, shall we say, on a footballing perspective. And it's something we've talked about a lot on the pod over the years. The teams who have someone in place who oversees the mid to long term vision of a club can, if it's done well, help smooth over bumps in the road. It can be a bumpy ride at times and things can pop up that you don't expect. Is that how you see your role and how difficult is it when you're also here day to day and stuff's happening day to day on the short term to remember that and and make sure that that's at the forefront of your decision making? It's really tough um, because you do get carried away in the emotion and the results of football because that's like human nature. I think we all got into this as fans and everyone wants to see their teams do well, but you do have to know that sometimes what you have to do to win tomorrow isn't what's going to help you win six nine twelve months down the line two to three years so it is hard to have that uh, that differentiation between trying to make the boat go as fast as it can to be successful right now but also to to leave it in the best shape and I, I didn't want to go sort of too cliche but the one thing I got told when you take this sort of role and I've never really lost sight of this, is to make sure that at some point, if and when I leave this football club, it's in a better state than when I came in. And that's something that I I try to keep in mind all the time and thinking, okay, is this gonna is this gonna be short term success or is it gonna be something that helps us set the club up in the long term and, and, and leave a legacy of what we're trying to do at the football club. What are the sorts of ways that you measure success? Dale was really loose with me when we first spoke about this, which was great. And his his main mantra was make progress and people go okay how do you measure progress and it's a really valid point and last year we probably had our first sort of 
actual steering of, of winning a league and achieving promotion, which everyone goes, oh, that's progress. But his mentality on us getting promoted was making sure that uh, we, we've we continued to make progress. And he's always said, "Is we will get promoted when we are ready and steady to get promoted. Whereas some teams have have had the, the sort of flashing pan success built on a short-term success, and then they end up getting relegated. And that's what we've wanted to to steer away from that when we did get promoted we want to now establish ourselves as a league one club similar to the path that we trod in league two the first season it was before i joined the club survived in league two and then we've progressed through with a couple of playoff campaigns uh finished 11th in the covid season and then won the league so we've had ups and downs but it is hard to to measure success and ultimately as well does the hard bit of that is there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that knows that people in the club know we're making progress, but not everyone gets to see it. All they get to see sometimes is the the result and the score at five o'clock on a Saturday or ten o'clock on a Tuesday night, and it's not always a reflection of of what it is. and And it's my job to find ways of assessing success in terms of like the in a first team level, the model of performances and and how we're actually performing in games, just as a, aside from the result. And also the recruitment successes of the football club and, and are we able to operate on a on a firm player trading model and, and, and have we got an identity and a and a progression in everything that we're doing and, and how we, we drive the game forward and how we continue to achieve success. You joined the club as head of recruitment, I think 2018. Uh, it was less than a year after that that you became the director of football 2019. So what was it like, personally, professionally, to watch from the very first match of last season a lot of work come together all pretty quickly and quite dramatically under Rob Edwards to the point where Forest Green Rovers took a a huge lead at the the top of League Two. Brilliant and we can't underplay the work that Rob did in that he was brilliant for the football club and it felt like Rob was what we needed at the time he was a a bright progressive young coach and I I think we as a football club saw something in him that other people hadn't yet seen and and were prepared to give him on that chance but also like he was the he was the figurehead we'd needed we'd had we'd had people here that had sort of divided opinion in the last 10 15 years and and Rob was great for for sort of spearheading the identity and the direction of the football club and and honestly it was one of the biggest privileges to be such a part of that success last year it it still makes me smile thinking about it now and 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 that feeling of um, of winning the league at Mansfield and uh, do you know what? I, I just want I'll say this now like the Mansfield staff and everyone around that football club were so classy on that day we won the league it was it was a pleasure it was a shame we didn't do it at home but like they were brilliant and I, I can't thank the fans of Mansfield enough and the staff they were brilliant that's great to hear but just to be a sometimes you want to become a bit of a football romantic and the goal that won us the league was a pass from Adoka Godwin-Malief who was a boy we signed from Oxford City who'd never played in the football league before who passed it to Josh March who scored a brilliant goal who was a player we'd signed from Leamington it's hard not to be romantic about the game when things like that happen and it it leads to that sort of success for for the football club and a sort of goal that will be etched in the history of it is is two players that we've we've brought in we've developed and we've established into to first team players so being part of of that group of staff and that group of players was was incredible and and it, it, we we had some really great moments as a as a group last year and the, you you talk about how you measure success and um we had meetings with all the players the day after the season ended and Ibu Adams came in and 
I think everyone in the wider footballing world knew that Ibu was probably going to go on to bigger and better things and, and rightly so and we couldn't be happier for him because he's one of the best people we've ever come across but he just he summed it up for us and said that this isn't a team and a staff it's a family now, that might sound cheesy and corny to people but like that's how we realise we're making progress and we're we're achieving a lot of success and, and for a, a key figure to, to have that sort of mentality was was brilliant and it kind of summed up how the season went last year. You appointed Rob Edwards at the start of the summer and I think I'm right in saying one of the ways in which you wanted to support your manager was with having a squad in the building for him to work with rather than still adding and still selling up until the last week of the window, five, six games into the season. How important do you think it was that Rob Edwards came in and within a week or so, I think you had the squad locked in then? It was huge. Um, and it was something we were deliberate on. We we signed five players last summer um, and people didn't believe us at the time. We went away on pre-season to Loughborough and we took 25 players with us and that was the 25 players we intended to go till January with. And everyone thought, oh, they're going to do this. They need to bring these players in. But we were had such a clarity in mind that we knew exactly what we were doing and we were we calm, we got the group. And also as well, in, in terms of that supporting Rob, there was uh, the players we brought in. Um, ben Stevenson was a player that we'd been watching independently and then when me and Rob started talking plans on recruitment he'd worked with Ben at Wolves so that was a very easy one for us Jack Aitchison had been at the club before and was uh, an excellent addition and we all knew what he could do and we were delighted to bring him back and then Sadu Diallo another player that Rob had worked with who we hadn't done the, the sort of volume of scouting work but once we were able to get Rob's input into not what had gone wrong for Sadu but why he'd missed a lot of football and, and figure out a plan of getting Sadu back to his best we were able to to progress forward so within that only having to bring in five players was huge and and it was important for me and my role to show an early collaboration with Rob and back him with what we're trying to do and 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 pull together and I think that was probably highlighted in he was prepared to back me on the fact that we worked with Jack Aitchison before and obviously we were prepared to to back him with players that he's worked before he's a he's a good man he's a good judge of character so you can't underplay that but it was it was a huge a huge part to play for us and I think winning a league only using 19 players in a league season is pretty unusual I don't think anyone's <laughs> done it since and I, I, I hope the physios uh, and sports uh, science team got a big pay rise because you had one of the best injury records I've ever seen I hope they're not listening to the podcast <laughs> uh, but they, but again it was a culmination of of the work and and we we'd done a lot of work around the sports science work and the the loading and the players and making sure there's no spikes and and we quite often spoke about it and again apologies for going into the cliche but we were always out after games running harder than everybody else and there was no coincidence that that was getting us to the top of the league because the lads that were on the pitch and the lads that were going well and achieving success knew they had to keep such a high standard because there was somebody willing to take his place and again go back to Josh March probably didn't have the season he wanted in terms of starts but every time he was called upon through Covid or injury he uh, he led the line brilliantly and he was everything we needed in a, in a squad player in terms of his attitude and then when he stepped into the front line he was brilliant and he, he scored the goal that won the league and it's a Josh March's name now will be forever in the folklore of this football club and and that that's testament to the staff and the culture that we had last year yeah as you as you talk about Josh March I'm thinking about 
him last season. I remember talking about him on Quest after he scored a goal or two, a really nice goal in one of his first, I think it might have been his first start of the season. He'd waited months and months for it and he looked so sharp and so hungry. And as I'm talking to you, I'm, I'm thinking if you're going to have players who are going to struggle for starts, all you want from them is to look sharp and hungry. And, and, and that was certainly achieved with Josh and, and others as well. You haven't done loads of your business this summer, albeit with still a, a week to go in the window, seems, again, measured, doesn't seem like any signings for signing's sake, that's for sure. It's it's fairly lean and targeted, at least that's what it looks like from the outside. Is it difficult for you in your role where you're going you're gonna to be getting loads of calls from agents, of course you're going to be across the transfer market, to not get excited by shiny things that might pop up at this stage of the transfer window, while also needing to keep your finger on the pulse in case you guys receive a bid that you can't or won't turn down. That's always the challenge. And it is hard because like you want to sometimes want to make things happen. But again, we've we've identified a couple of players we'd like to have conversations about potentially bringing in even at this point. And it, it's really rewarding for me that when I have that chat with Ian, his mentality isn't, I've got to have a centre forward. It's if this player becomes available, I'd like to bring this player in, but I'm not going to sign a player just for the sake of it. And and having that sort of counterbalance to me to be able to have those conversations with worth its weight in gold. Some managers and head coaches just want to hoard players and and just want new players and and want to chop and change. And and I I, I genuinely feel there's a there's a real culture change in head coaches now and, and certainly this exciting brand of young British head coaches that just want to work with players, want to make them better and and don't want to have that sort of old school managerial approach of just get me a new player, just bring a new player in, sell him, move him and and, and these coaches now see it as a challenge to develop players and, and want to be part of it. So following on from Rob's success of developing players with a few a few players that moved higher up the league. We, it was important to us in one of Ian's qualities that he can develop players and he makes players better. And and I think too much of that gets gets missed out. Just going back to, to last season, that wonderful title winning campaign, it was it was an unusual journey to reach that destination in the sense that it's incredibly rare for any team to take the lead that you guys took for the majority of the season. And then, of course, it's it's unusual for a team who have been so dominant to have a period of time where results turn somewhat and, and the rest of the league table gets a little bit closer. As the director of football, how do you respond and work through a difficult period like that? What impact can you have and what sort of actions can you take to try and help, essentially, when the team itself is struggling a little on the pitch? I think it... So going back to last season, I think at that point it was showing support and solidarity with the head coach, and not it. It was my job to provide a, a stability for the football club and not panic and not not want to rip things up and 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 not not being unnecessarily inquisitive with stuff. We we look at data a lot. We have our own KPIs in terms of how we play and, and the ways in which we want to achieve success, and actually that there was a decrease in that period where we weren't getting the results we perhaps were due but we were playing quite well still and and it was a lot of things ultimately I, I think I we all know football well enough to know that we were there to be shot at everyone everyone was calling us the champions elect everyone was saying when we beat went 10 points clear with Tramir that it, that it was over and done with and and footballers are highly competitive and other head coaches and managers are highly competitive and everyone wanted to knock us off a pedestal and we had to deal with it and 
I think we'll all be better as a football club for I think by staying calm and staying calculated in what we were doing and how we were playing and and not straying too far away from our identity that's why everything sort of leveled itself out and we were able to win the league and 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 also like you look at other teams absolute credit to to Exeter City and Matt Taylor they probably weren't getting the results they wanted at the start of the year and they went on a great run at the end of the season and ultimately like the league table can still have its really weird quirks to it like Bristol Rovers are in the top three for 10 minutes of the season it just so happened to be the last 10 minutes of the of the, the campaign and that's and that's what it can do to you and and uh, some people said to me you only want it on goal difference I'm like, it's because we scored more goals like it, it, these things are put in place but it, it it was just staying calm staying calculated in what we were doing and staying true to what we were and not not panicking and not overreacting to anything that that wasn't really there work-life balance not something that's known for being a, a a real positive of working within a club perhaps no better example of this than you and Forest Green Rovers achieving promotion last season and when wanting to celebrate that properly, uh, having what was a very busy start to the summer, shall we say. The manager, Rob Edwards, leaving for Watford, handling promotion and all and everything that that entails, uh, and also the departure of at least three pretty key players of that promotion team. So not a great time to be you know trying to go away and celebrate not an easy part of of your job in a sense getting and enjoying time off no it's not um so uh, touch on a couple of bits there so the players we we were well planned for the players leaving that we had to be um and probably got no sort of shame in admitting this now we were doing work on head coach in the background but that Rob leaving came sooner than we thought so it's been a learning curve for us to know that that football can provide a little bit of volatility and and I think the point you make on work-life balance is a really valid one because it is incredibly hard and it can be all-consuming and and I think football sometimes has a weird way of making you think you need to be doing more than you need to be doing it it, like you don't want to get left behind and you have to try and you have to try and maintain that balance. And the lucky thing I've got, I've got a lovely wife at home and two kids. My wife just doesn't like football, and and, and like you're gonna say she doesn't like seeing me with that as well. <laughs> it's just it's a two part thing. But like actually having having kids is a great switch off, and and it's something we've really tried to to press on with as a staff here now that when we're here, we'll we will work really really hard and we will give everything for the football club, but also we're still humans and we're still normal people and we we need a day off we need a break and like within reason if we're off on a day I'll try not to speak to Ian I did the same with Rob and we'll try and have a bit of time away from each other and then the next day comes and we're back at it and we're back working but everyone needs a break and 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 people have to be aware of that because football can be all consuming and and certainly for a head coach because no other job would have a public appraisal once twice a week with a crowd of 4,000 people it is unique to anything else and and I don't know how if you've not done it and you're not involved in it people perhaps don't understand it but it is volatile and it is hard and to have to go and walk across a field of 5,000 fans when you've not got a result you want is is brutal and you have to help be able to help people to switch off and cope and, and deal with that like I say, Rob leaving was was a real shock to the football club, but that's the game. It doesn't make it any better or any worse, but sometimes 
when you think you've achieved something, it, the football's got a unique way of biting you on the backside and uh, yeah. dragging you back down to earth. So the moment that Rob Edwards' departure is, is confirmed, everyone's kind of licking their wounds, you have to spring into action. This is going to be one of the most important parts of a director of football's job is replacing managers, finding new managers. So I'd be interested to know the process of, of shortlisting, putting managers on your radar, which I imagine happens all the time because you now know that your manager can leave at any moment and then whittling that down the interview stage and why Ian Birchnell who was appointed from Notts County so start from the very top of that I'm incredibly lucky and privileged in my role with 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 our owner and Dale he'll give me the the scope to go and do my job which is really really important to me and why I love working at this football club so at the point where Rob left, we had a chat and we'd identified what we really liked about having a, it's a bit of a rubbish phrase, a Rob Edwards type, a young coach who wants to develop players and has got a good manner. And, and, the, and that we'd actually, within Rob, he Rob was brilliant for us, but we'd identified the type of characteristics that we really wanted in a head coach. And that, was the first natural filter that we were able to go okay like who's got a defined playing style who's a good communicator who's a good man management who's a player developer and who can be the right sort of face for the brand of our football club and and again that whittles it down to quite a few people and 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 I'd watched Ian's Notts County side quite a lot and they played a really exciting brand of football we then go away and uh, I'm I'm quite sad in terms of this. Watch loads of his post-match interviews, and is he the sort of head coach that'll that'll blame it on a player when he loses, or will he will he stand there and take responsibility and be able to to break down a game and have a have a sensible conversation after a game and and discuss how how it's gone wrong and what he might have got wrong. And Ian showed that humility and absolute drove, so that was really important to us. And then also, like the, the modern game's evolving. We looked at the the data of of Ian's Notts County team and and how they'd achieved and what the style of play was and what that was similar to and and ultimately would that be a fit with with what we've got in the building player wise and and what we want to be going forward and and we felt there was there was a progression in Ian's style of play from from where we were last year that he would be the head coach to to drive us on and and work with our players the best we can and and help us continue to keep moving players up the ladder so it was it was really important because we felt he was a great fit from a footballing perspective but also as a person he's incredibly authentic humble funny and and reflects what we want to be as a group so having that head coach that that shows all them traits is really important to us so that's why we felt Ian was a was a great appointment for this football club to to help drive us forward and again Notts County were excellent to deal with which was refreshing after the the probably the the taste that had been left after the the manner in which Watford handled themselves Mm -hmm. right yeah interesting when it comes to replacing players another big part of your role Kane Wilson right wing back Nicky Cadden left wing back two very different types of 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 wing back two different interpretations of that role Ibu Adams as mentioned midfield do it all really a lot of people would be worried about losing players of that quality. For someone in your position, I guess there's a sense that you have to relish it. You have to relish replacing these players as a big part of your job and, and showing off what you can do. 
you knew that there was a chance these players were going to be leaving months out. So you have a bit of a bit of time to build up. Are you thinking and discussing with your team that you need to look for like like for like players who can just plug in and play the same sort of role that Kane and Nicky and Ibu played? Or do you have discussions about seeing this as potentially a chance to tweak things a little bit to get players in with slightly different skill sets and maybe change the team style somewhat and, and the strengths and weaknesses? It changed a little bit because the the initial planning of potentially Kane, Ibu and, and Cads leaving the football club was done under the premise that Rob Edwards was going to be leading the group. So Rob had slightly different demands. And then when Rob left, we were were able to start to tweak it and we had an idea about who might be coming in. So that changed it a little bit. But also like the other side of what we stand for and what we are as a football club in terms of helping develop players and bringing them in. I remember a certain pundit who may or may not have been quest at the last game of the season who referenced that we might lose our three best players. And um, I was actually watching it with my wife after we got in after the Mansfield game and, and she turned to me and she said, how are you going to replace him? And I I laughed. And I, the, the point that I tried to make to her, Kane, Kads and Ibu weren't the best players when they joined the football club. Kane was released from West Brom. And we all knew what a talent he could be and how good he could go on to become. Ibu was playing at Ebbsfleet and was told he could leave. And Nicky Cadden was not offered a contract at Greenwich Morton. And, and and that just shows what we do. And the and I've referenced it with our chief exec because he said to me when Liam Shepard and Joe Mills left, how are we going to replace them? We replaced them with Kane and Cads. And then this year we, we go and replace again and, and give opportunities for, for players to go and develop. And also from a, from a footballing perspective, I think from the early players we signed, Corey O'Keefe was an early signing. Um, Armani Little was a, an early signing for us and his output in terms of pressing in the final third was very similar to Ibu Adams. Now, as you rightly referenced, Ibu Adams can do a lot of things on a football pitch. So then we bring in David Davis, who gives us that sort of defensive security as a that Ibu offered. And, and then left wing back, he's not been playing for us yet because he uh, suffered an injury in pre-season but we'd identified Harry Boys as a player that was excellent in the National League so we, we knew the players that we wanted to bring in it's a shame we've not seen Harry yet but we're, we're hopeful when he comes in he'll do well and he'll achieve success but it it's up to the next generation of players to go and develop and, and go and be the next ones to get the moves Do you consider the step up in level from League 2 to League 1 to necessitate a slight tweak in how you're going to approach things on the pitch? Yeah, we, we want to be known by playing a certain way and that's important to we and it's important to the football club but we have to be aware and pragmatic of the level and I think the early games we've had this season have shown that. We played Plymouth on Saturday and we dominated possession of the ball which not many teams will do against Plymouth and, and speaking to um, Stephen after the game he had his reasons off the back of a big loss but they, they had the moments of quality in the first half and and punished us and Ipswich the same they they had lots of good moments against us but we we were remaining in the game and they had two real moments of quality and that some of the goals that have been scored against us this year are probably goals that we wouldn't have seen in League Two and that's not being derogatory of the standard but you can't give good players half chances in this league and and that's what we have to adapt and deal with and progress if we want to go and achieve things this year we have to know that we have to take our moments in the games and 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 that was certainly evident in the Plymouth game. 
we had a couple of good chances early doors. They had a half chance with Finazaz on the edge of the box and he puts it in the bottom corner. It's an unbelievable finish. And and that's what good players will do to you. So we have to be completely respectful of the level we're at and knowing that we won't get as many chances as we did last year and we will be punished for mistakes and we have to learn, make less mistakes and have more uh, more clinical nature about us in the final third. Does that change at all the sort of profile of player that you are looking at or telling your scouts to go out and watch for example okay we might we might have way more transition attacks this year because we might have a bit less possession and territory does that come into your thinking yeah a little bit and we have to cut a cloth accordingly but our plan and the way we're going to set up this year is to be try and be ball dominant most games can be now we still need that sort of x-factor athleticism which we feel like we've got in bits and and players like sean robertson really help with that and a real pace to get us up the pitch and harry boys is a great athlete corey o'keefe's a great athlete so we've got athleticism everyone would take a pacey center forward at this point if there's one knocking about that could really improve the squad and and, and that'd help our group as well um and we'll be we have to be aware of what we're up against and what it's going to look like and know that there there are like like you rightly say there are going to be transitions in these games and we have to have the pace to recover with them both defensively and offensively and 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 affect it accordingly but also the other side of it as well we feel like we've been able to sort of better approach the loan market this year with someone like Miles Pert Harris's quality coming into the football club probably doesn't happen in league 2 when the change in platform as they can play in League One, that helps you. That helps us as a as a football club to go and bring somebody in. I'd be interested to drop the word data in. It's something that George and I, for six years on the pod, have have talked about a lot. Have really enjoyed tracking the the use of data within the game, both in performance analysis, but also in in terms of recruitment as well. Uh, it was when we started the podcast only a select group of forward thinking clubs that used data and knew how to use data in recruitment and generally uh, those clubs did pretty well in the transfer market now it feels like with various platforms being more widely available and widely used by clubs that edge if you could call it that may be slightly blunter slightly less of an edge so would you say forest green rovers your recruitment team are data heavy or about middling or is it now the case where you focus on on trying to exploit other areas and find other edges it's a very good question i would say I would say we were a sort of a very happy middle ground. Everything we do is a is a culmination of everything that's uh, that's part of successfully bringing in the players. Going back to initially having that recruitment strategy of where you're looking for players, then what sources can you use to help you inform and guide that? And that be data, old school trawling, scouting, agent recommendations people that we know in the game and I think that the big skill in in what we do well is capture everything and capture where it comes from and and then generate enough information and then use all of our filters and the data and the the live scouting and the character reports to go and filter down what we need and and one of the things I think we do quite well here is is keep it simple I think there's there's so much data out there now I think actually the skill is cutting through the noise and figuring out what's actually important what's relevant and and what are the 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 key bits that we look at and some of our modeling that we look for to to assess our game aren't stats that are readily available through your conventional platforms like stats bomb y scout 
So what we have to do in terms of our recruitment is figure out what's really important to us and then how do we assess it, how do we utilize it and how do we how do we make it function that there's a there's a cohesion in between what Ian wants to help the team progress, what the football club wants, and then how do we find it, how do we identify it and how do we bring them in and and at what point do we have to be brave and say, okay, he hits all of our numbers, but perhaps he's not the right character for us or he's not the right type for us now or he's the right character that perhaps doesn't hit the numbers. And and that's what I think we do quite well here is we don't have a, a one-size-fits-all approach. We we bend to what we need and what we have to bring in and then we, we cut our cloth accordingly. And, and I also think we have a we have a good awareness of where we are as a team and the types of players and the and the types of leagues and types of divisions we can affect in terms of our recruitment we won't get too carried away we're not going to spend lots amount of money we're going to be a bottom eight budget in this division so we have to cut a cloth accordingly and and be the best at what we can affect enjoying the challenge of being a league one club despite the the slightly odd nature of it with some some big dogs and some slightly smaller ones i absolutely love it we work really hard for a lot of years for with a lot of people some have moved on and players to get to this point and for a, a team like Forest Green to have already welcomed Ipswich Plymouth we go to Sheffield Wednesday on Saturday tough fixture list to start eh <laughs> but it's brilliant like this is what we want to achieve and that's not being disrespectful to anything in league 2 because we really enjoyed it and we enjoyed the challenge but this is what we w- all want to achieve we're all incredibly ambitious here so to go and go away to Hillsborough is incredible and I'm I spoke to a few at the staff about this and I just said I'm incredibly proud to go as a director of football of Forest Green Rovers to Hillsborough it's an incredible achievement for the football club and the ownership and and everyone that's been involved and I'm incredibly proud of it and then I made a promise to myself that we will enjoy it and we're not here to make up the numbers we want to go and do well but we have to enjoy this this is why this is why we work. This is why we do what we do. And and if you can't embrace the challenge of going and play some of these teams that have, have won European Cups and FA Cups and played in the Premier League, then what's the point? What, what What's the point? Let's just hope Wednesday don't ask the owner, the chairman, to wear a tie in the boardroom because he's not too keen on that. And I back him to the hill on that front. I must say, the owner who is very well known for his businesses and his ethos and, and his vision of, of how the world should be, Purely as a football club owner, it feels to me like the way that he is as a leader has a huge impact and filters down throughout the club in a, in a way that I must admit I hadn't necessarily realised or thought of before. But it, when you're here, it's just clearly very, very real, tangible and, and very impressive as well. Last question. You don't want to suck up to the boss too much. Um, will he be busy next week, transfer deadline day? We will potentially do something yet. Yeah, we're... we're- we're active at the minute. We're looking to bring in a couple of bodies, um, whether they happen or not. And we've got we've got some. We can't lose sight of what we've got to do within the group as well. We've got some young players that need to go out and play football as well. So we have to. We can't bury head in the sand and just be focused on recruitment. We've got three games in the next seven days as well, um, which is which is good. It's a great challenge. It's good to be busy, and this is again that's why we want to be in the role. But I, I can potentially see us bringing in another player. Um, 
as I alluded to earlier, if it's not the right one, we won't do it. We're not just going to do anything for the sake of it, but hopefully come uh, transfer deadline day next week, we'll be uh, sat watching all the madness unfold, knowing we've got our business done nice and early. And you've given me the blueprint for an answer whenever I'm asked a difficult question, which is, I will potentially do something. <laughs> Always potentially. You get, get away with it then. Um, thank you very much, Rich Hughes. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. Right, my turn for an interview now, uh, and I'm with Preston Johnson from Wagme United, owners of Crawley Town. Uh, Preston, delighted to get you on, on the show. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good to be here. You're you joining us from, from Crawley, from London, from the States. Where about are you? <laughs> I'm in the States right now. I'm near uh, Los Angeles. I was just in Crawley for about three weeks for the start of the season through August, and then uh, my six-year-old son's birthday had had to be back for that one. So I just, I just, I just flew home uh, a few days ago. Good to know you got your priorities in place. Uh, any, yeah. any good places to to have a pint or to go and eat at Crawley that you can tell anyone about for away fans getting there? Ooh, that's a good question. I've had uh, there's a pretty good Italian restaurant called Prezzo, which I believe there Ooh, might be yeah. one or two in London as mm. well. That, that was a pretty good spot. I mean, it's it's Crawley. Like obviously, London has a, a much better. Uh, <laughs> selection but uh i will say you know what's good that everyone has there though it's like in america we don't have it is nando's it's just so good yeah and it's like so common there and i don't know why they don't bring nando's to the west coast in the united states but it's uh i, I eat there like every two weeks or so whenever i'm out there yeah you're never really 10 minutes away from nando's in the uk so it's yep. uh yeah it's, it's not too bad uh Pretzo also yeah an underrated chain i'd say so good uh I'm afraid the questions are going to get a bit more pressing than that in this interview at some point. But let's um, let's start on the football side of things, Preston, because um, you know we're speaking that the listeners are aware that this is pre-recorded. Uh, it's before uh, your game this weekend against against Rochdale, but we do talk just a couple of days after an unbelievable win in the Carabao Cup, uh, beating Premier League Fulham two 0 a Fulham team including players like Tom Kearney, um, you know, a, a fairly good Fulham team uh, and a 2-0 win there. I bet you weren't anticipating uh, when you, you guys took over the club that you'd be beating a Premier League side by the end of August. No, but we also anticipated more than one point in league play. So it's been interesting. <laughs> We're going to get to that. <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting to see like the variance within such a short sample, which, uh, you know, it's partly just probably randomness. Partly, we've had so many injuries already, which I know everyone claims that, but we've quite literally have had eight or nine of our our first squad players and six that would be starters, uh, six center backs, six of our seven best center backs have been hurt for at least two weeks so far uh, since the season began. So we've just been dealing with those. And so I think you've just seen like the lack of cohesion show in some games. Um, and then like it, Fulham, though, like it, you know, it came together. They, now those players had gotten a few games under their belt and they, they played way, um, way above their heads, which I give them a ton of credit for. And, you know, Fulham wasn't their strongest squad or anything, but I think I saw the odds at one point were as high as 11 to one. And then mm -hmm. after the lineups came out, it, it dropped down to about eight to one. Um, so it was still, we were pretty big under, underdogs. So it was nice to get that one, at least, you know, try to carry that mojo into Rochdale Saturday and get three points because uh, they're at the bottom of the table. We're 23rd and uh, it's a big one for us. Yeah, you're definitely welcome. Talking odds and data on this podcast, uh, Preston, is a big win. So, um, so that's a okay. good start made there. Um, and then also in the last week as well, um, well, yesterday, uh, at the time of recording, you appointed Chris Galley as director of football, someone who um, those involved in or those who take interest in the data side of things will, will know from StatsBomb. Uh, is that a pretty significant appointment in your point of view for the long-term future of the club? Definitely. We are excited to have Chris. Obviously, one thing we've said from the get-go, since we've kind of became known even at the end of last year in December 
was we're going to be extremely data and analytically driven. So Chris's background on that front is extremely useful for how we want to build a sustainable modeling club on the football side. Um, from just everything else, like I've actually met and, and worked with Chris uh, the last few months, regardless, you know, via stats bomb. And he's, he's a really genuine person, has a really uh, grandiose network, which is uh, helpful for us as far as just knowing the right agents, at least the ones we can sort of trust, knowing the right people, if it's um, mm. for um, consulting for, say, a set, set piece specialist or for um, this type of thing, or if we need this type of player or this type of scout, uh, it's, it just helps us cover and kind of umbrella along with what Kevin and Dan already bring to the table and their networks, having been at Arsenal and working with the English national youth teams. Um, we're, we're in pretty good shape there. So we kind of just added that final piece to where we're at um, from a data standpoint, analytical standpoint, and, and how we want to play the game. What does that mean for your long-term relationship with Statscom, going, going and poaching one of their guys full-term? Are you still working with them in terms of your actual uh, your, your analysis and your, your kind of data recruitment side of things? Yeah, Ted, Ted probably. I'm not sure, Ted, if you're listening. Um, we're friends. He, he we listens have, as well. <laughs> we, have, we have mutual friends. Uh, he probably hates me, but... Okay. Uh, we still use all the stats bombs data. I think, uh, you know, historically as many seasons as it goes back in like 11 leagues worth of data. So um, we're using them for, for that. We think they have the best play-by-play data that exists. And so we want to utilize that to the best of our advantage, but I'm sure he's uh, a little bit frustrated that we scooped uh, Chris <laughs> from, from their side, but they also have like such a big team. Um, yeah. They're going to be okay. They'll, they'll survive. It's overdue that Ali and I have to go for a pizza with Ted, so we'll uh, we'll talk you up to him when we do go out and meet him soon. Um, in terms of the of the season so far, you know, looking, you mentioned there one point so far in in, in the games. You know, I personally and Ali, Ali and I, both of us, um, you know, we do a one to twenty four um, prediction table at the beginning of every season, which is always our most popular pod, uh, and we had you guys um, in the top ten uh, on the basis of. You know, we could see that whoever was making the decisions, whether it was yourself or Statsman or whoever, um, the recruitment looked very good to us. The appointment of Betsy and Machichi to, you know, very well-renowned coaches in the game, dropping to League Two, it became pretty evident, you know, the signing of Dominic Telford, who I think we anticipated would go to League One or above. It was pretty obvious that, um, you know, taking away the noise that we'll talk about in a bit with, the, you know, the crypto stuff and the NFT stuff, it was a pretty exciting project. So you mentioned that the injuries, but the the start to the season, I guess, has surprised us. And looking into the data side of things, you know, it's, it's basic data from Opta, but you've got the second worst XG so far and, and the third worst XG against. So at either end, it's not really going to plan. Have you been su- surprised by the start of the season? Or would you put it down to the, the injuries and just taking time for, for Kevin and Dan to, to kind of get their ideas across to the players? No, definitely surprised, even despite the injuries. I mean, this is a club that even with the, the previous players or squad finished 12th on the table each of the last two seasons, right? So it's a relatively league average mm. squad we added <laughs> to it. So the point being, we have depth. We should be able to withstand the injuries. Now we're you know playing in new style to some degree with Kevin and Dan, and there's a lot shifting. Uh, we also, it's interesting. You look at the Carlisle game. I think we lost the XG nearly like three and a half to 0.5. Mm. Um, our attack is you been, as well. Our, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry you did that. Uh, our attack has been extremely poor uh, throughout and that needs to get better. We need to create more opportunities, but uh, on the defensive side, since that Carlisle game, it's actually probably yeah. been one of the best in the league. Um, for example, in Northampton Town and Wimbledon, the combined XG allowed was 1.15, but we allowed five in real life. So uh, that went against us. That's pretty bad variance our way. In each game, there was a 0.01 free kick that they uh, converted 
um, the second goal in each of those games. Um, obviously, the second one in the Northampton Town game being one that cost us at least the draw. Um, and in that same game, it was the 93rd minute, it was tied, and we were taking our own free kick just outside the box. And 30 seconds later, they were scoring the other way to, you know, basically win at the death. So we've had some bad fortune. And I know it's not, it's like the opposite of what fans want to hear is they just see the results. They see us allow five goals, um, you know, with some of our, I mean, we had, I think it was two B squad center backs playing in, in both of those games. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult, but we have to just kind of keep pushing along. We have gotten healthier at the very least, you know, in the last week and uh, we should have Dom back as well for Saturday. So um, that'll be helpful as far as our attack goes and um, just kind of learning some of uh, what's going to work at the league two level versus not. I think um, Kevin and Dan are, are adjusting and adapting well. On that point, I mean, it was it was stark to see in the first two games you had this season. I think you averaged about 65% possession in both. And I think naturally, Crawley fans who are you know, under John Yems with a very different style of football being played um, and the results and the lack of attacking thrust were quite vocal about wanting that to change. And, and we have seen that change. You know, it's not quite as possession heavy or hasn't been over the last couple of fixtures. Has that been a... Uh, just a realisation that maybe at League Two level, um, ball retention isn't the most... Um, it isn't necessarily the best way to go about trying to create create chances. So I think they recognize that we need to get results and start getting points now. And so they're going to try to find the right balance. Um, but they also like, and I keep bringing it up, but it's true. You know, if, if they were to say, Hey, here's the three guys out of the back that we'd perform. We haven't even mentioned the fact that Ellery, who we brought in from Brentford yeah. to be the keeper got hurt in the first half of the first game. And now we have Corey Adai who hadn't made appearances at all playing and keeper um, Ellery, they think is, technically with his feet, one of the best keepers in the UK. And so he was part of that strategy of bringing it out of the back playing possession style. So when you lose him on top of your whole starting back line, you can't really play the style uh, mm. if the actual, you know, footballers themselves aren't accustomed to that style or don't play it well. So I think they've tried to play it long more frequently, especially in a game like Fulham where we want to take a high variance approach and, and, and try to, pull off an upset, which they were able to do. So uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I think we'll see more possession as we get healthier in the back and Dion Conroy, for example, who's the captain at Swindon last year, who play a similar style. Once he returns, George Frankham is the captain from last year's squad at Crawley. He's been out. Um, once these guys start coming back, I think we'll be able to play a little more Kevin style, but I think they realize the value in um, getting the ball up the pitch and, and pressing and high, and high pressing something that they've focused on the last two matches. It's been um, at a much more aggressive level than it was previously as well. Um, and so I think they're, they're adapting, they're learning, um, but I don't think they're going to totally leave their ways once uh, we have the right personnel that are able to execute. Yeah. There was a great uh, article in the athletic, uh, I think a month or so ago before the season started um, talking about all the different changes and just how, much of a professional infrastructure has been put in at the club um, since you guys got involved. Um, in terms of the, you know, and I guess bringing in Kevin Betsy and Damachichi as the, the the manager and the assistant as part of that, what was their, I mean, if you can say, what was their, um, you know, what do you say to them at the beginning of the season? Was the aim for the season, what are the expectations uh, for them this season? Or because it's a long-term project, is it a case of finding out what works, building for the future? Because we know that long-term, the ambitions are, are pretty high. So we're trying to do both, and I'll, and I'll explain that. Eben and I, the other co-chairman, Eben Smith and I have, we came out when we acquired the club and made a statement that if we're not promoted in the first two years, the, the fans could actually vote us out and bring in new people from our group to help run things. And um, they could have proposals, whoever it may be, they have the opportunity. We think 
owners should be accountable. It shouldn't just always be the general manager or the manager or head coach that gets the sack, right? Because uh, owners typically don't get, there's no downside to them to buy a team and just continue to own the team, even if they run things incorrectly or you know in mediocrity. So that's an important part of our ambition in getting promoted in the first two years is there. But we also knew we had to uh, be pretty forward thinking in this sense that we needed to build a sustainable model that isn't just buy a bunch of players for one season and hope you get promoted or a second season. Because even if you do, the chances of then staying up at League One, if you don't have a sustainable foundation, are pretty slim. And we've seen it happen plenty of times, especially once you get even into the championship. Uh, if you don't have that foundation, it's just not going to work. And you're going to find yourself relegated and probably losing money um, overall in that sense. So what, what we thought was important, for example, um, was solidifying the professionalism of the club. You know, last year, Crawley's staff, they didn't have a full-time goalkeeper coach. They didn't have a video analyst. Um, they had, uh, a strength and conditioning coach. I think it was his first job just out of university. We wanted someone that had more experience that could really utilize the data from the GPS tracking during training and during games. And uh, we wanted to upgrade there. We wanted to get, you know, a nutrition plan and, and a chef for, for the players and just really optimize the sports science and the analytics um, combined with uh, the fitness and then the actual style of play and, and technical developmental abilities that Kevin and Dan bring. So, um, you know, from there, uh, now we have that foundation laid where we can grow together and, you know, sustain at higher levels. Um, I also think what's interesting, and I think this is an argument that I could be wrong. Other people could be right. I also could be right. Other people could be wrong. If it's really hard to play lump ball, long ball at championship or Premier League, it's just not going to work very frequently. Mm. It's, it's really tough for league two league one clubs. When they do get there, they're usually just finding themselves going right back down playing this style of possession based style of football can work at that level. That's where we see most of the beautiful football played. Um, so for us, we're trying to build and play a style and integrate a style now ahead of time so that when we do in the future see ourselves moving up we're able to sustain that in theory more often than if we were to just spend for a bunch of long ball type guys hope we get promoted but then just get destroyed if we're at yeah. championship in five years or something so that's also part of what we're trying to do so there's like a lot of different levels and, and variables but uh it's kind of part of the puzzle and obviously slow start in league play um but I think we're trying to build this the right way so that it can actually be a sustainable model at a higher level down the road. In terms of, you know, being uh, a football fan, uh, somebody who's, you know, worked in the past at trying to, you know, effectively bet and predict the outcome of football matches. Um, what's it been like, uh, you know, suddenly being involved in the day-to-day -day running of a football club? There's a lot of pressure. Actually, was I was doing an interview with a friend here in the States yesterday on radio. And he, we had beat Fulham and he's like, Hey, you should jump on and just kind of like talk about it. It's been a while. I used to do, I used to, I was in sports betting and my background's mm. there. And so, um, but I told him, he was like, one of the things that really stood out to me, uh, the last two weeks, especially being there during, you know, it was after that Northampton town loss, which is like right at the end when we had a free kick right outside the box, we had dominated. The, I think we won the XG by almost double in that game. Yet we lost late um and the fans are starting to really like i could feel it they're looking at me you know i'm sitting up in like the hospitality directors area um they're booing at the end after we lose you know kevin and dan like they're starting to feel the pressure as staff and it's it's definitely a level of stakes um this is what i was explaining yesterday on the show it's like playing at high stakes but not financially or fiscally but with the actual livelihoods of these fans when you when you're there you realize how much they really care about the club and a lot of them 
they go and work so that they can eat and sleep and, you know, go to football games. Like, you know, football is life over there for, for Crawley town fans. And then that's how it is for most everywhere in the world, honestly, outside of the United States um, where soccer just is like fourth or fifth in line. So um, that's pretty eye opening, but it's, I felt that pressure. Like I was actually feeling pretty down. I was taking the train home that night and I was just like, I was feeling it. I was like, man, like I'm letting everyone down, not only the fans locally, but like NFT holders, right? Like the investors in our group and stakeholders, my family who I just had a baby and now I'm over here for three weeks. My wife's with three kids by herself at home. Like I was feeling it. So um, it was good. Like for me, my, my background, my, I grew up in the music industry. It's where my dad worked. And so I've always written music to kind of like cope and just have an outlet. And so that's what I did. I like went home. I was up till 3.30 AM and just like wrote some music and like tried to reset and refresh, which was really healthy just from a mental aspect. But I woke up the next day feeling a little better, but it really was like actually getting to me. And this is, you know, someone that had hundreds of thousands of dollars in play on a college American football Saturday. And it's like, we lose to Northampton town and I'm just standing there. And I just like, it was, it was another level. I just haven't experienced before. So it's, I'll, I'll be honest and open. It's, it's tough. Um, everyone said, you know, get ready for that. And I've still probably underestimated it in my own head on how connected I feel already to the people. And then when we're performing poorly, you know, that, how that impacts me. I think that's a really interesting point because, um, you know, clearly, I mean, I'm going to ask you in a second how the, you know, the crypto side of things is going to relate to the, the future of the club and the future running of the club. But in terms of the community that you built around Crawley, obviously, you know, the, the Twitter spaces is great. And, and there are a lot of guys out there, you know, NFT holders who probably had no idea who Crawley Town were eight months ago who are now Crawley yeah. fans. And that's brilliant. But in terms of, of this podcast and the audience of this podcast, it is EFL fans or football fans whose um, love of the EFL goes far beyond their team and they're, in, they're taking interests in everything. And whether it's the, the crypto side of things or whether it's purely just an American um, investment group coming in and buying a football club that they have no relation to, relationship to, what assurances can you offer, not just Crawley fans, but English football fans that say this run doesn't improve and say, you know, that things don't get better at Crawley on the football side of things, that your passion and your drive and the ability to fund the club will continue even if things don't go particularly well, because we've seen what happened at Bury and recently, um, you know, last season as well with Oldham, where again, an owner came in, tried to fund the club and then things didn't go well and suddenly he seemed to lose interest. What assurances mm -hmm. can you give fans that that, that isn't going to be the case? So I hope, out of the gate. I mean, it's a great question because there's a lot of unknowns still. So I'm not going to pretend like I can say something and everyone should just trust me. But the, <laughs> the, fa the fact that I have, I've spent a, more than half of my life there in Crawley slash London since um, April when we acquired the club, uh, also in March and in January when I was visiting. Um, like I'm, I'm trying to ingrain myself in the community locally. I'm no, not many owners play like an owners versus fans game for fun, you know, <laughs> on a Friday night across from Broadfield. Like we did that, like we're, I'm taking people out to, to dinners or to, to the pub occasionally, or just like trying to um, do things that show them I, I'm, I actually care and I'm, I'm there for them um, locally, as opposed to most owners, you know, kind of to sit in the background and they have the people that run things for them. So I just want my presence and and, and ability to, to be personable. And I've opened up my DMs since April and on Discord, I'm constantly trying to talk to, to fans and answer questions. And, and I hope that that has at least gained some of their respect and um, at least trust in me for what we're trying to do. Obviously, if it, if it fails, that's it's not great. We're going to find a way to, to do it. I think I actually tweeted after that Northampton game, something similar, because people were upset. I, we, we did 
so one of the things that uh, uh, one common complaint just from the fan experience side is that the queues are too long at halftime to get food in time before the game starts. So like two weeks before we had this idea, we're like, Hey, for the Northampton town game press, why don't you go into one of the queues and serve pies and whatever, just like help out. So I did that, but because we lost the game and then we posted the TikTok after like, Oh, well, this is your response to losing a game. It's like, we had this planned anyway. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm helping out at halftime at the time we hadn't even lost the game yet for one. Um, but like people took it like really. So, but anyway, I tweeted something. I was just like, I hope that a TikTok of me serving pies at the game doesn't change your perspective on how all in I am on this and making sure that there's success. And I think people appreciated that and kind of at least help put it into some perspective that mm. let's be honest, like pies at halftime don't really matter in the grand scheme. Like, I know people love to moan and, and get upset and I'm the guy that will take the blame, but in which is fine. Um, but that's one thing that I was just like trying to be, I like restated on Twitter. I the tweet was, I am all in on this. Like this is everything. So people just have to try to trust us. There's nothing else I can say um, other than our actions to this point, as far as spending on, on players, coaching staff, sports science and infrastructure and our, our actual um, presence there from, uh, just like a caring aspect of for the people in the locals. Hopefully it's enough for them to, most of them do buy in, you know, it's kind of the loud yeah. minority versus the the quiet majority, which is usually the case online. Uh, just quickly on that TikTok video, the um, the somewhat infamous uh, Cumbria uh, Carlisle video as well. Was there <laughs> a bit of learning there that maybe, you know, sport in England is a bit more community rather than the kind of franchise nature of American stuff? I don't know what you're talking about. No, um, so... <laughs> We can get into this. This is interesting. I'm curious what you guys think. So uh, I'm more on like the football operations and Eben is like yeah. the ideas guy and kind of like macro thinker. And he took the blame for this one already anyway. So I don't yeah. mind talking about it, but I, I knew about the video before and I, I was fine with putting it up. Like I didn't think the backlash would be that crazy, um, but it was especially from the locals that thought we were misrepresenting them and the identity of the yeah. club incorrectly, which we underestimated for sure. Um, but I also had locals, a lot of them on the younger side that reached out and said, I can't believe the outrage. This was hilarious. So it's like you, you get both sides. We hit the extremes of both, but the intent to be completely honest is look, we have um, this remote fan base now that needs to learn about league two. Like mm. they don't, they don't know anything about the clubs we're facing every week. Like how do we teach them about the town, the city, the people, the history of the club. And so a video like that was like a funny way to introduce them to Carlisle. Um, that was the intent. And the intent was that it could do, do it in a way that gets attention and they're just roast videos. And in theory, if we had done Carlisle like the 13th week and some other club like Leighton Orient, who we played the following week, uh, maybe the roast wouldn't have been as drastic and it would have been fine and actually played well. Um, but because it was Carlisle and Cumbria, I don't think uh, we probably crossed the line on, on on how far that went. I would say this, though. The next week, Leighton Orient social team came up to us at the game and said, we're really disappointed you didn't do a video. We were looking forward to it. I talked to two brand man. I spoke to two brand managers at agencies, which will remain nameless, in London um, just like 10 days ago um, that thought it was brilliant and said the amount of attention you guys got, it's all anyone was talking about that day, which is kind of the point, right? We're trying to yeah, yeah, pay attention to this League Two club. Um, so it's a really tough balance to like, you know, don't want to misrepresent the locals and the heritage of their club, but also, you know, bring attention to it at the same time so that we can help the club grow. Uh, so that's a really, really tough one. And I think, you know, I'm not sure if the videos will ever come back or not. We'll probably keep trying to do other content ideas. We're going to take risks. We've always told people we're going to take risks. We won't hit every single one perfectly, but uh, 
that's it's a really fair um, question and point just because it's uh, it's part of the, the struggle in, in balancing everything because there's kind of like two crowds uh, and there's the football and then there's the off the pitch stuff and content and, and media. And it's uh, it's kind of crazy, but that's, you know, we think we have a good team put together to solve it. It's just, um, yeah, that one was just went a little too far. Before we let you go, um, you know, a, a lot of the the talk around um, the Wagme United project and Crawley has of course been around the crypto side of things, the NFT side of things. You know, we were very keen to talk to you about, you know, the on the pitch stuff um, that you're doing uh, first and foremost, but sure. in terms of, in terms of that, you know, it, it I guess it almost got off to the wrong foot with the with the kind of tobacco with, with Bradford um, halfway through last season. That was when most people who probably listened to this podcast would have first heard of Wagby United and heard of you guys. Uh, and, and I think quite a lot of people still think that, you know, the club, that, that your plan is basically for the club to be funded by the sale of NFTs itself. In terms of explaining to people who, who don't, understand cryptocurrencies nfts and the way you plan on using them and whether the long-term financial security of crawley town is dependent on um the crypto market not crashing um yeah, yeah. what would you say to your kind of layman uh, fan sure there was a lot of actual misinformation in a few articles back in december then again in april that was getting circulated uh that said you know the volatility of bitcoin is tied directly to crawley town football club um, which just, it just wasn't true. I came out two days after we acquired the club and I did a, like an in-person um, AMA or I did, it was, oh, sorry, I was on video, but it was like my, my face. I was talking to the media guy. I was answering all the questions that we had those first two days. And one of them was around that. I was like, we bought the club in, in cash. It was in GBP. We also had to pass the fit and proper director owner's test. We had to actually put funds into the club account for the next two seasons of expected losses because Crawley Town, before we got here, already lost a million pounds per year. Uh, that's all there. Like the resource side was covered and it was in cash and has nothing to do with Bitcoin. Now, the NFTs, that's like our virtual season ticket on how we can create a pipe between a remote fan and one that has an actual location and, and that's in Crawley town. And so um, the NFT said like, yeah, we were able to, you know, I think we sold, for example, the, 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 the club did 900 shirts last season all year. Um, we did over 10,000 for eight times the price. Um, so like, yeah, if, in theory, it was positive for the club. You know, people were saying Liverpool couldn't sell NFTs. How is Crawley town? We sold more than Liverpool again, I think seven times their price. Uh, so, I mean, like there's something there we're, we're building on the back end from a tech standpoint on how we can really utilize the blockchain technology. And we don't need to get into those particulars, but um, yeah, I would just say to people, like it's the actual um, situation and, and, and the solvency of the club isn't correlated to crypto. And yes, we are NFTs is one of our, our new revenue streams or resources to use for the club and the community um, quite literally. And, you know, luckily we have a great partner in Adidas as well to help us um, kind of legitimize the, the brand and, and, and from the football side as well. On a wider point within football, you know, clearly you guys, have a um you know your, your as you said your histories in sports betting that there is more to your project than just the the crypto and nft side of things uh, as we can tell by this conversation what do you make of the way that nfts are being used um around sports whether it is sportsmen themselves ex-sportsmen releasing their own nfts um or you know, in some cases clubs uh, having shirt sponsors who seemingly can't operate in the uk and, and can't really operate anywhere um what do you make of the that kind of sphere at the moment within within UK sport? 
Sure. I'll be honest. I don't think I'm as up to date on everything on that's happened. Uh, I wish I had time to follow more, but I even, I was like a pretty major collector of NFTs in the end of 2020 and 2021. And I probably haven't bought an NFT now for uh, multiple months just because I've been focused on this. You but don't I buy the Cordy shirt. <laughs> oh, well, I have, I have, I have a bunch of those. Sorry. But I, I don't, I didn't count those. Cause that's, yeah, yeah, of things. course. but um, <laughs> no, I already gave away a bunch of like, I was like early Christmas presents to friends and family. I, I got, yeah, I yeah. got a chunk of them that I, I, I gave out, but uh, anyway, so I'm not as up to date, I guess, on what's happened with particular individuals and clubs, but I know a lot have tried to do things and most of them have just kind of flopped uh, because the honest truth is like for Liverpool, for example, I mean, when you try to sell NFTs to the 99.9% of your fans that don't care about them. It just looks like a, a cash grab. It's not very genuine. And they're, they're the people that are already giving you money anyways. You know, our strategy was reverse where we were bringing a professional club to NFT fans. We didn't ask Crawley fans to buy NFTs. Now what's interesting is we've had, pro- I would say maybe 125 Crawley people that we know of now that have a Wagmi United NFT because they cared enough and were interested enough to get one. Um, so that's been cool to see. And, you know, there was one uh, individual in particular that actually helped on board probably 25 or so of those people himself. Um, so that's been fun. But uh, the main, I think, idea is not to force it on your local fans, even for individuals in sport that have tried to do their NFTs. You have to do it in a way that um, is just honest and doesn't look like some crazy crash grab that actually has utility and, and you know, impacts everyone. It's like we always talk about win-win-wins. And that's ultimately, I think, what the technology can provide. Um, it's just, you, know, you have to figure out the right ways to utilize it. Brilliant. Really interesting to talk to you, uh, Preston. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and uh, best of luck for the season. Hopefully see you down at Crawley uh, in the next couple of months. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. Take care. Massive thank you to Preston. Massive thank you to Rich for sitting down with us and providing us with some really interesting insight into two different EFL clubs, Forest Green Rovers and Crawley Town. Let us know what you think at NTT20Pod on Twitter. It'd be brilliant to hear um, uh, your feedback, really, from these episodes because, as discussed at the top, we don't do enough of them. We would like to do more interviews. Sometimes it's hard to find the time to properly schedule these, do them uh, in person, ideally, uh, and to find the time in the busy pod schedule to release them. So let us know who you'd like us to talk to in future and what you thought about this episode. The big question, will there be a a weekend recap pod tomorrow or will the next one be Thursday's betting show? Who can say? All we will say is go out, 